We are in the book of Amos. So this is part five of our ongoing series through Amos. Now, I gave a, a, a lengthy introduction to Amos in part one of Amos. A really cool, historical, ancient Near East cultural sketch. But I keep referencing that because I each sermon I keep running out of time with the material that we're covering. So if you want a wider context or introduction of what's happening and what's led up to these events, uh, the first 10 minutes of part one of the Amos series, it's online. You can listen to that at, at lynchburgcitychurch.com or searching Lynchburg City Church uh, through the SoundCloud website or app. And so once again, for those of you who are here, I'm happy you're here. For those of you who aren't here, you're away for this for, for the summer and you're listening right now online. We miss you guys. Um, and we're going to jump into the story of Amos. It's 760 BC. So if you're a historical enthusiast, you can maybe figure out where we're at right now in the narrative. It's 760 BC, and God has taken this guy who is not a pastor, not a priest. He's, he's a guy, as far as we can tell, he's He's a shepherd, but as we saw in part one, he's really a breeder of sheep. He's probably benefited from the economic boom. He's he's a businessman, really, from the city of Tekoa, this guy named Amos. And he's taken this guy and given him a message to bring. And it's not a very popular message that he's got. He's got to say some things that maybe some of you today, you're not going to like what I'm going to say. And if that's the case, you're... You'll probably relate really well to these people because as Amos is speaking these words, these people are not liking what he's saying at all. They don't like it. And his message, he comes on the scene and he gives a series of indictments to the nations surrounding Israel for their sin, for their, for their wickedness. And, and no doubt, I, I just imagine Jude and Israel, they're, they're cheering, they're, they're applauding, this is great. All these people who mistreated them, man, they're getting what they had coming. And, and then Amos turns his attention to Judah and then specifically to Israel and he says, hold on a second. I don't know why you're clapping. Cause I have, I have something to say to you guys too. It seems that they, were no less wicked. They were no less evil than the nation surrounding them by all indications. And so Amos brings this message in 760 BC. It is a, a golden age for Israel. Golden age. For the last 40 years, things could not have been going better. Things are going really well. Lots of money, peace, prosperity. It's just things are going well. And say, what's the problem? Well, there's a lot of problems. Corruption, religiosity, among others. We'll, we'll see some of those examples today. But that's, that's the setting for the story, at least where we're picking up here in part five today. So here we go. Chapter five, verse one. He says, hear this word. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation or in mourning, O house of Israel. Hear this word. He's urging them. Listen. Hear this word. The word for word is actually uh, referring to a lament or a funeral song. So, 
So hear this word, hear this lament, hear this funeral song. And they're like, wait, what? Like, yeah, it'd be like me coming. You guys, these four guys up here, they look like real strong, healthy guys. Be me like coming to you and I say, guys, um, tell me, I'm thinking about playing this song for your funeral. And you'd be like, wait, what? Like, we're healthy. Look at us. Like, I mean, I mean, we're strong. Maybe Terrence just took a PT test. Like, I'm not in any, any fear of dying. I'm perfectly fine. I'm perfectly healthy. Amos' audience would have been stunned when he says this. Like, listen to this word. Listen to this lament. Listen to this funeral song that's about to be played for you. And they're like, what? You can think you get the wrong, you're talking to the wrong folks, Amos. We're doing just fine. I mean, they're living in this golden age of economic peace and prosperity. And yet Amos comes and he's saying these crazy things like, hey, listen to this funeral song that's about to be played for you. Hear this word, this lament, this funeral song. <laughs> oh, okay. See, Amos views them as, as good as dead. Their future was so certain in, in the mind of Amos that he views them as, as good as dead. They would have been stunned. This is, this is shocking, right? What he's saying. And then he paints this very bleak and pessimistic picture in the next verse. He says, fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. The word fallen, it, in the Old Testament at least, it refers to a person who dies tragically or unnecessarily. Not like a, someone who dies of old age or disease. Someone who's fallen, they die tragically, unnecessarily. And the picture that he paints is, is in this verse like an army in the field of battle, corpses just all over. It's a very bleak picture. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel. See, the irony here is this is how they viewed themselves. The word virgin here suggests both youthfulness and purity. These folks thought, they were just the perfect little people. Everything's fine, which adds really to the tragedy of this story. Everything's not fine here in Israel. Things are not fine at all here in Israel. Yet this is how they see themselves as this youthful little pure person in the midst of mass corruption, in the midst of religiosity, in the midst of abusing other people, mistreating other people. Verse 3. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left, the house of Israel. In the context, in verse 3, going out, so they, they went out, going out. It is suggest some type of militaristic context in which in going out they're they're literally they're they're marching. They're marching out. This is this is the picture he's painting for us. So he says, a thousand go out, what happens? Hundred come back. Hundred go out, what happens? Ten come back. So 
Think if you think units, right? So a thousand, that'd be like a big battalion. I just preached this sermon yesterday, uh, uh, to some soldiers out in, uh, Southwest Virginia. And so, so it, they, they understood this very well. But a thousand guys go out. A battalion goes out. They're decimated. All this left. They've been reduced from a thousand to a hundred. And now they've got maybe two platoons, maybe a company. And then they send them out and they're decimated. And all that's left is ten guys, just a squad. It was a thousand guys and they've been reduced to ten. A battalion cut down to a squad. This picture that Amos paints of this total decimation. And then it begins to make sense why he says in verse 1, Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Hear this word. Listen to this funeral song. You guys think everything's going right. You think everything's going well. You think that you're in no fear. You have no fear of, of anything. So I want you to listen to this funeral song because things are about to change very drastically. And once again, they would have been stunned at this. We're strong. We're healthy. Times are good. We haven't had this much peace or this much money in quite a while. And Amos says, I, I look, I'm looking at your future that God has revealed to me, and you're as good as dead. So why don't you tell me what song you want played on the, on the track, right? Tell me what song you want played at your funeral. You, you want me to come speak at your funeral? You, you, you want someone else? You want Pastor Dane? Who, you, just let's think this through. Like, they would have been shocked. And no doubt he paints this very bleak, bloody picture of annihilation. And decimation. And he continues with verse 4 and says, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Seek me and live. But do not seek, verse 5, But do not seek Bethel, And do not enter into Gilgal, Or cross over to Beersheba, For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, And Bethel shall come to nothing. Things have been very bleak. If you've been following along in this series, the first four parts that we've broken it down to, very, very bleak. In fact, even last week in chapter 4, verse 2, Amos announces this, The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, Behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Like God has sworn by His own holiness that this is going to happen. You're going to be taken away by fish hooks. Those of you who are lucky enough to die, you'll be, your corpses will be drug out with fish hooks. The rest of you, you'll be taken alive into captivity. He says, this is, it's as good as done. And yet, it seems that Amos believes perhaps just maybe if they would but turn to God, perhaps, perhaps just maybe, God would be merciful to them. You want to live? Seek God. You want to live? Seek God. Don't seek Bethel. Don't seek Gilgal. In the context here, these are places of worship. We talked about this last week. Bethel, it means house of God. It's where Jacob Met the Lord, uh, the, the ladder to heaven with the angels descending. So it's a very holy site. It's a place of worship. Gilgal, Joshua chapter 4, I think verse 24. 
recounts the story of Israel crossing miraculously the River Jordan. They set up the stones as a memorial. Once again, it's a very special place that God was just so real, so powerful to them. These are places of worship. And the ironic thing is, he's saying, you want to live? Don't go to these places of worship. Now, normally when we think about, well, we need to get our life straight, right? We need to straighten out our life. We need to get back on track. You say, well, well, we normally say, well, you need to go to church, right? You need to come to small group, right? You need community. And those things are not, not true. But the ironic thing is, he says, don't go there. Don't, don't come to Lynchburg City Church. Like, what's up with that? But when you understand, because this seems kind of strange. He says, don't go to Bill, don't go to Bethel or Gilgal. It seems strange, but you have to remember that in lieu of what we talked about last week. In chapter four, in part four, you remember, and I'll read the text. To, to bring you back here. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says, come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. In other words, come to Bethel, come to Gilgal, and just send it up. It was pretty shocking last week, right? You remember? It'd be like me coming to Lynch, me coming and saying, hey, you should come to Lynchburg City Church. And while you're here, you know, if you want to look at porn while you're in the pew, like, that's fine. You want to do things with a girl that you brought today? That's fine. You want to just gossip and lie and do every type of despicable thing? Yeah, come to Lynchburg City Church. It's the place to do it. You'd be like, that guy's high. Like, what's, what is up with that? You're inviting me to come and sin in the worship service? And as we said last week, as shocking as this would have been, Amos wasn't saying anything that wasn't already taking place. All that crap and garbage was already happening at these places. And you wonder why God's so furious. You see, going to Bethel, going to Gilgal, should have resulted in them truly seeking God, and yet it's not. It's in filth and evil and sin and corruption. That's what's happening. You want to live? Very much a big theme today. You want to live, Israel? Then seek God. Don't bother going to to. to to Bethel, don't bother going to Gilgal. You want to live? Then you better seek God right now. You see, for the people of Israel, these places of worship, Bethel and Gilgal, these places of worship had essentially become a substitute for seeking God. They should have been going to those places to seek God, and, and they weren't. They had become a substitute for truly seeking God, as well as a bunch of other just pagan, religious garbage had been happening. And so he says, verse 4, you want to live? Seek me. Then he goes on to say this in verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. It's a pretty big theme. It's going to come up several times. Seek the Lord and live lest he break out like fire. So there's a picture of fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. You want to live? Seek God. Because if you fail to do this, the picture is fire not being quenched, continuing to burn, just, just total devastation and destruction. No one can grab like a hose and put it out. It's just not being quenched. You, you want to, you, you want to live? Seek God. And you say, because everyone wants to say, well, what happens if I don't do that? Let me tell you, that's what happens if you don't do it. That's what happens. 
an unquenchable fire ravaging. Seems like a no-brainer here, what they need to do. Seems like it, at least. Verse 7. And you, and verse 7 is going to give us a little bit of a picture, as well as some of the other verses of some of the garbage specifically that's been taking place. Verse 7. O you who turn justice to wormwood. In your Bible, for wormwood, it might say, or, or bitter fruit. It's, it's a reference to, to bitterness. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteous to the earth. You see, what they're doing is they are taking justice. And it's going to be very clear in the next couple of verses. It's very much in the legal context, like at court. And people are taking bribes. And people are oppressing other people, poor people, people who maybe aren't as important or aren't as cool or aren't as significant, and they're mistreating them and they're taking advantage of them. And the place for justice should be the court, but it's it's not. And they're they're taking justice, which should be something that's good and and helpful and sweet, and they're trading it and they're exchanging it for something like wormwood, something that's just bitter. They're taking something good and exchanging it for something just not. Good at all. And, and the righteous? Oh, they're just getting tossed away into the shredder. They're getting tossed away into the garbage can. That's, that's the picture. They're, they're cast, they cast down the righteous to the earth. They just discard them. More on, on this picture from in verse seven in, in a few moments. Then he goes to verse eight. And, and here's the segue. Verse eight is a praise. It's a hymn. He's just going to pause right now and he's just going to praise God. In, in the middle of this, and in praising God, showcase the greatness of God. And he says, He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. In case, in case you don't know who he's talking about, he says, The Lord is his name. Who makes, verse 9, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. He's the shot caller. That sums up verse 8 and 9. He is the shot caller. He is sovereign and in control of all creation. And it's interesting because there's a contrast here between what he's just painted for us in verses 8 and 9 with what he said in verse 7. In verse 7, Israel, they've got some power, no doubt. And they're using this power to change things in their society. They're using this power and changing things. Things they shouldn't be changing. Remember, they're changing, they're trading and turning justice into bitterness, into wormwood. They're doing this. And then Amos points out that God, God, like these people, he also has the ability to change things. He also has power to to do things. And and yet, God's power is a little bit different than than their power, which has been used in a very corrupt way to distort justice. See, God's power, unlike theirs, is not limited He's not limited in his ability, in his power. He's not limited by scale or scope. His ability extends to the universe. For all that is far, all that is wide, it is to that powerful God that Israel is, is held accountable. And so he mentions to them, he paints this amazing picture. The Pleiades and Orion, 
these constellations, which are within the ancient Near East, these, these folks have been very familiar with. He said, he did that. He did that. Those constellations, Israel, he, he did that. And uh, today, we have it's light outside. In a few hours, it'll be darkness. And then it'll be light, and then it'll be darkness. He, he did that. He did that too. And, and oh, by the way, he, he says, he's taken up the waters. He's taken, he's called forth the, the waters. He calls for the waters of the sea, and then he pours them on the surface of the earth. And we saw a lot of that last week in part four. Remember where months and months and months of drought in one town, and literally the town right across the street, it would rain. Just to try to get their attention. Just to try to, to, to get their attention. And it says, as we saw last week, and yet they did not return to me. In a situation in which very much, and I acknowledge this last week, that Baal, the Canaanite god, within Canaanite mythology, Baal is the god of the storm. If Canaanite practices, and I think it's probably by all indications the case, if Canaanite practices were being uh, used within their worship services, then it would make sense to them that, well, if we need rain, we pray to Baal. And he's making very much a cultural point. That's not how it works. Baal is not the god of the storm. Baal is not the god of the storm. Yahweh is the god of the storm. If it rains, because God made it rain. If it doesn't rain, because God prevented it from rain. That's the only reason why. He put the constellations in place. He makes the day turn to night and the night turn to day. He makes it rain in one place and withhold rain in another place. And so he has this, this hymn of praise to God. And also for Israel, that's who you're accountable to, Israel. In case you've forgotten, it's easy sometimes to forget when things are going so well, we become very self-sufficient. It's the danger of prosperity. It makes us more reliant on self than we are relying upon God. And then he continues this picture of God's sovereign control over all things. Like, in case it wasn't clear enough with the Pleiades and Orion, the constellations, in case it wasn't clear enough that the day turning to night, or that he calls forth the waters from the oceans and then pours them out on the land, in case that wasn't clear, he says this in verse 9, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Once again, if I had to summarize verse 8 and 9, I'd say he's the shot caller. He, he is in sovereign con control to the point where he, he makes it very clear. Israel, even a foreign army who, who marches towards your gates and you, you take refuge in your fortress, even that army is under God's control. He, he grants victory to one and defeat to another. It's not like, oh, God's wondering, I wonder how these armies are going to fight it out in battle. I wonder which one's going to win. He grants victory to one army and defeat to another. In other words, Israel, you can go and run in your fortresses, in your structures. It doesn't matter. If God brings an army, if God grants an army victory, it, it will not matter. Where you take refuge, what you place your hope and confidence in. Clearly, that's the picture Amos paints. 
He puts the constellations in the sky. He changes day to night. He makes it rain in one place and not another. And he grants victory to one army and defeat to another. Israel, you need to understand. You need to get this. That this is the God that you're accountable to. You want to live? Then you better seek God. You better get your garbage together right now. You better get your crap together right now. Verse 10. Verse 10 is, is very similar to verse 7, if you're taking notes. Another picture of wickedness, corruption, injustice. It says in verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate. And they abhor him who speaks the truth. The phrase at the gate, and if you were here for our Ruth series, it should be a no-brainer. The gate is another reference to court. When you would go into a city, typically this is what you'd find. You'd walk through the city gates, and right inside the interior walls, there'd be these plaster benches, typically, not always, but typically. You sit on the plaster benches like this, and so people coming in and out of the main gate, they could they could see who was there. And you're not like there for to socialize and hang out. You're there because you have legal business. You have it's it's another word for just saying, I'm going to court. That's where you would go. And so the picture here that he paints. For us, is the justice that should have been there is totally been corrupted. And, and when people come and they try to reprove and they try to correct and they try to speak the truth, they're essentially told, shut up. We don't want to listen to you. Go away. We don't have time for this. Don't, don't correct us. Leave. Which, isn't anything new. In fact, if you remember back from part two of our series in chapter two, verse 11, he says this, and I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? And then in chapter two, verse 12, it says, but you made the Nazarites drink wine and you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Just another picture. Essentially, paraphrasing what I just read from chapter 2, he said, I gave you spiritual leaders to help you stay on the path, to help you to help you follow my instructions. And, and this is a good thing, so that you're not ignorant. And what did you do? You told the Nazarites, hey, join in with us. Join in with us. You told the prophets, hey, shut your mouth. We don't want to listen to you right now. And that's another picture of what we see happening here in verse 10. They hate him. Who reproves them. They hate him who says, well, hey, what you're doing isn't right. They hate him. They tell him to shut up who speaks the truth. These people are so wicked. They're so corrupt. And God's just furious with them. And what's been taking place? Justice does not exist in Israel at this point. Verse 11. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. This picture of this lower class of people, these poor people have been completely decimated, completely taken advantage of, completely trampled on. They chalk it up to, to taxes, but in the context here, it's very clear. Um, this isn't a, some type of contradiction with what Jesus says. 
when he says, whose likeness is on the coin? Well, it's Caesar's. We'll give to Caesar's what's Caesar's. The, the picture here in the context here is these people, out of their greed, are, are collecting more than they ought to be to the point where these poor people are just being punished. They're essentially stealing what they have. They're exacting these taxes, but it's well beyond what they should be taking from these people. And then they're using it to build themselves these great mansions, these great houses, these great vineyards. And the poor people have no recourse. They can't go to the gate. They can't go and seek justice. They have no one there to speak on their behalf. They're being trampled over. No one cares anymore about them. They've been forgotten. God has not forgotten about them. He hasn't. Whether you live in America or North Korea or any other country or any other place, God sees what's happening. God sees atrocities. God sees injustice. He's furious. And he knows the facts. He knows the truth. <laughs> the constellations, right? The Pleiades, no, right? He knows what's happening. Sometimes, no doubt, it's a struggle because it's like, well, then, are you turning a blind eye? Just remember, I think this will help. Don't take God's patience as him turning his back on a situation. God will be as patient as he wants to be, and God will be just when he wants to be just at an appointed time. No doubt, perhaps, some of these people maybe were really discouraged because it felt like other people were just getting away with stuff, garbage, crap, whatever. Um, the fact that God's justice hasn't already happened, honestly, blows my mind. <laughs> and I'm just like, wow, you're really good. You're really good, and these people aren't. You're so patient, and these people are just terrible. I don't know why you didn't crush them like five minutes ago. And Amos comes to them. says, you better listen up because you're as good as dead. <laughs> you're like, you're as good as dead. You want to live? You got one option. You better, it better happen really quick. You better seek God right here, right now. Verse 12. Verse 12. And actually on verse 11. These people who are being trampled over. They're exacting these taxes more than they need, just taking from them, trampling over them. And, and he, he makes a really clear note. He says, you're living in those great mansions. You've got those great vineyards because you've trampled over people. You've stepped on the backs of other people way more than you ever should have. And there's coming a day when other people will live in your mansions. There's coming a, a day when other people will enjoy your vineyards. So, so enjoy it while, while you can, while, while you have it, because there's coming a day when you're going to be taken away. Remember chapter 4, verse 2, with hooks. And those lucky of you to already be dead, the others will be taken away alive. No doubt a, a, a foretaste of the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC. Yeah, I see you guys. You're not getting away with anything. You, you enjoy those houses. You enjoy those vineyards. Soon someone else will be living in them. Then he says this, uh, verse 12, 
for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate, in the court. Once again, they're just another picture. They're, they're just depriving the poor of justice. Who else is going to help the poor? Who else is going to help the needy? Who else are going to help these people? Like, they go to court and, and people are taking bribes. I mean, back earlier on in the series, right? They, they're exchanging, like, they're, they're, they're selling them off for a pair of sandals. It's, it's, it's an ugly scene, guys. And then he says in verse 13, and verse 13 presents some interpretive challenges, so we'll, we'll talk about that for a second. But it says, therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time. For it, it's an evil time. And it seems to be, at first glance, that the prudent person is the one who keeps silent. But the words prudent keeps quiet and evil. They have a very wide, at least here, they have a very wide semantic range. And so I, I, the incorrect way to see this is to think, okay, well, the wise person, the prudent people, they just keep silent. But I don't think that's what he's advocating at all. If that was the case, why is Amos here bringing this word? Not only that, why are there people in verse 10 who are trying to correct, trying to speak the truth? Rather, I think probably a better way to understand verse 13 is not, okay, if I want to be prudent in evil times, I'm just going to shut my mouth. But rather, within the, as I said, for the word prudent keeps quiet and evil has a very wide semantic range, allowing several interpretations. I think the better way to see verse 13 is that, and the point is, is that these these times were such that the wise men who in other times would have been consulted for their wisdom, were silent because no one would listen. That's, I think, really getting at the heart of verse 13. The point is that the times were such right now in Israel that the wise men who, who in better times would have been consulted for their wisdom, they're silent because no one is listening. Why? Because they don't want to. Going back to what I read in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, God gave them Nazarites and prophets. God gave them spiritual leaders. And they said, join us. Or they said, shut up. We don't want to hear what you have to say. Why? Because they wanted to express the truth. Why? Because it's convicting. Why? Because just like when you have someone who, who loves the Lord and you're, and you're doing things that you know the Lord does not love, you're like, I don't even want to be around that person. That's these folks. That's these folks. They don't want to be around people that love God. They don't want to be around people that speak the truth. And so he says this in verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Seek good, especially in this context. Especially good would be justice for the poor. Why? Because there is no justice right now. It doesn't exist. You can call it justice. You put whatever label on, but it doesn't exist. People are being trampled over. They're being mistreated. They're being oppressed. It doesn't exist. Seek good and not evil that you may live. You want to live? You want to live? Then you better listen right now. You better listen right now. And so, it says in verse 14, And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. The irony of verse 14 ties back 
the irony of verse 2, is the virgin Israel. They thought of themselves as better than they actually were, as this pure, youthful, innocent little little person. And the fact is, is that's not the case. That's why he says in verse 14, so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Like, in, in spite of their injustice, their corrupt worship, their religiosity, they're still claiming that God's with them. I don't know how else to explain this and say, these folks are a joke. They, they're they a freaking joke. Claiming that God loves them, that God is with them, and yet living this life, you'd be kidding me. And yet that happens all the time today, right? It does, because people will say, oh, well, I'm a Christian, and, I, and then you, you get a sneak peek into their life for like, I don't know, three seconds, and you're like, really? You're a Christian? Because, like, I'm not condemning you, but like, I'm looking at your life, and other than you saying you're a Christian, I, I see you acting completely not Christian. You say you love God. You've you got to be kidding me. You gotta, you gotta be kidding. Like, some of you may remember, I've, I've used this illustration a lot of times in the last four years. It was spring break. I'm in seminary. My buddies and I were down in Daytona Beach. It's hopping. Um, I think MTV was like there the week before. True story. And I'm sitting in the lobby. It's the only place that has Wi Fi. And um, I'm, ch- I'm, jo- I'm, I'm trying to get a, a paper or some type of assignment turned in. Um, and there's a guy next to me in the lobby on his laptop too, because that's where there's internet. And we're talking, and he finds out that I'm I'm a Christian. He's like, and uh, and we keep talking, and he's telling me, yeah, I met this girl at the club last night. I'm hoping she accepted my friend request because I totally want to hook up with her and get with this girl while I'm here for the week. And I'm thinking, oh sweet Jesus, you brought this non-safe pagan into my life. I get to share the good news with him, and. Then he finds out I'm a Christian. He's like, oh, you're a Christian? Cool. Like, me too. And I'm like, really? Really? Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. You want to say that God's with you? You want to say that you truly love God? Well, then back it up right here, right now. This isn't to suggest that somehow we're saved by works. But rather, we're different for the people of God. We're different. If we're the covenant people of God, we are different. So you want to say that God's with you? All right. You can start by seeking good and not evil. Then he says in verse 15, Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate, in the court. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. People tell me all the time, when we come across language like this in the scriptures, they say, we're supposed to love, we're not supposed to hate. And I said, I say, well, why do you say that? We are supposed to hate. We're supposed to hate the things that God hates. We're supposed to love the things that God loves. Uh, it maybe just doesn't fit well on a bumper sticker, so that's probably why there's confusion. 
Um, <laughs> hate evil. Why? Because they love evil. They love evil. You want to live? He's giving some real praise. Be real practical. Hate evil. Love good and establish justice in the gate. I'm gonna, he gets real practical. He's like, we're gonna start real easy right now. We're gonna get real practical. Just reestablish justice because guess what? Justice doesn't exist right now. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I know you say that. It doesn't. No, no, we have justice in the gate. No, you don't. You wanna live? Shut your mouth and establish justice because it does not exist as far as God is concerned. You can call it whatever you want. You can say, oh, God's with us. Doesn't matter. I'm telling you right now, Amos says, you want to live? Do this. And you start by seeking justice for these folks. Specifically, just reestablish it. In other words, stop taking bribes. Stop being corrupt. (laughs) Hate the things that God hates. Love the things that God loves. And he says, and it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, like just perhaps, maybe, possibly, if you do this, God will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. That God, God won't wipe you off, won't wipe you out. Like just maybe, like it seems that Amos holds out this, this hope that should they return to him, should they repent, just maybe that God will be gracious. Verse 16 and 17, we close with these passages. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord in, in all the squares. In all the squares there shall be wailing. And in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. The picture here is not pretty. The picture here in verse 16 and 17 is horrendous. He, he doesn't tell us exactly what has taken place, rather shows the consequences. Everyone is just bawling their eyes out. Everyone is just weeping. It doesn't matter what door you open or what street you turn on to. That's the scene throughout the nation, wailing and mourning and, and crying, um, for what has just happened. And the picture here that he paints in verse 17, he says, for I shall pass through your midst. If it sounds familiar, it's because it probably is. Noting Exodus 12, 12. And you may remember, in the story of the Exodus, Moses comes to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. And it's one plague after another plague after another much like in the same way as we saw last week, to try to get Pharaoh's attention that Pharaoh might just obey, repent. In the final plague, the Lord sends the, the death angel to come and, and they take the blood and they paint it on their doorpost so that that angel of death might pass over, sparing them and their families but taking the lives of the firstborn of the Egyptian children. I think it's interesting that that's, and that would have been something, when he says that he's going to pass through you, that probably would have sent shivers down their spines. It's an ancient story, one that they would have been very familiar with. No doubt, 
He doesn't tell us exactly what's taken place, but just the devastation, the consequences. People are screaming and crying and bawling their eyes out. Because when this happens, when he comes, when he passes through, it will be too late. And people say, well, you know, this story, yeah, I've got a lot of a lot in like with the people in this story. But you know what? I'll get, I'll get right with God later on. Okay? Like, I got time. I'm starting college in the fall. Or I just got this new job. Or I'm moving here. Uh, later on, I'll, I'll take care of what needs to be taken care of. And the point is, is when this happens, when he comes, when he passes through, and when they're crying, and they're, they're wailing, and they're mourning, it is too late. It's already done. It's already happened. That's why Amos is urging him. He's urging him. You want to live? Seek God. Bow the knee to God now. It's your only chance. The picture he paints is just, no doubt would have sent shivers down their spines. That picture, that picture from that ancient story of the Lord passing through, and yet it seems to be unlike the Egyptians being being the target that they are. When this happens, the mourning, the lamentation, the wailing, the crying, it will be too late. Amos is urging them. Seek God and live. Stop making excuses. God's with us. No, he's not. Right? You know, I hear, I hear the dumbest things. People are like, well, you know, me and her, it's okay, because God understands, because, you know, you know, we're doing married things, even though we're not married, because, you know, in our hearts, you know, we're, we're married, or whatever it is. And I'm thinking, no, he doesn't understand. Like, you're a moron. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, bow the knee to God. Surrender to God now. Stop running from him now. Stop making excuses now. Before it's too late, get right with God right here, right now. Because by the time you wait, it very well may be too late. As the band comes, I'd like to pray for us. Lord, we love you. And I love this story. Love this story. It's a great story. God, whether it's pride that's holding us back, whether it's the fact that, eh, honestly, we, we like how thing, we like our sinful lives right now. We'd rather have sin than you. We'd rather have something other than you. I don't know. Idolatry. I don't know what's going on in people's hearts right now. But I pray that we would we would listen and yield to the advice that Amos gives these folks. The things are not right before you, regardless whether we say we're a Christian or that, you know, we have a relationship with you or whatever it may be. I pray, God, that our words would reflect our hearts and our actions. 
I thank you for being merciful to us. You're so crazy, patient, and merciful with these people in this story. Blows my mind. Like, why you haven't killed them, like, like six chapters earlier, and we're only on chapter five. Like, blows my mind. As I look even in my own life, how patient and kind and good and merciful you are, I pray that we would not presume upon your grace. Don't want to presume upon your grace. Make us wise and give us courage. Not just to say, okay, yeah, yeah, Amos is right. And then walk away and then no change. Oh God, I pray that you would, you would enable us, that you would grant us a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. As Paul prays in 2 Timothy 2.25, that in the words of St. Augustine, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Enable us, empower us to do the things that we've been taught to do, that we've been instructed to do. Well, there's still time to do it. We love you, God. You're good. You're great. We love you. Amen.